welcome to Bringing Design Closer. Our goal is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organizations to become more human-centered in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. Now, before we jump in, I have a favor to ask, like I say all at the start of every episode, I've been creating content personally for This Is Hate CD for over five years, all for the love of sharing knowledge to the global design community that has just sprung up around This Is Hate CD. Now, one thing that you could do is leave a review um, on Apple or Google or Spotify as it helps grow our community and every little bit helps. But even if you don't leave a review, you can go one better by telling your friends and the people that you work with about the podcast. Now, we launched a space on thisishatecity.com called the This Is Hate City College recently, where you can take courses on visualization, design research, trauma-informed design, and lots more. Now, in this episode, I speak with Ricardo Martins, Professor of Service Design at SCAD for the Savannah College of Art and Design in the US. In this conversation, we speak about the parts of design that are often trivialized somewhat, and that's the implementation of our designs into sometimes seriously complex systems made up of people and processes, or as we like to call them, organizations. We also speak about how we can educate the future of design talent better, and we chat about why Ricardo feels design leaders are lacking. It's a fantastic conversation, and I totally enjoyed connecting with Ricardo. So let's jump straight in. Ricardo, I'm so happy to finally get to to speak with you and connect with you. Um, But let's jump in, Ricardo. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Oh, thank you very much, Gary. It's a pleasure. I have been following your work for some time and I'm very impressed by your prolific production and all the benefits that I have bringing to the community. So, oh, thank you so much. And uh, talking a little bit about me, I'm a professor right now in Savannah College of Art mm-hmm. and Design in the United States. We are the only service design program with an undergraduate and graduate courses in the United States. And but before this I, I used to teach in Brazil mm-hmm. in one of the oldest programs of graphic design in the Federal University of Paraná. Okay. It's in the in the south of Brazil. But I have been working with design for around twenty six years. Okay. So you you've um in that twenty six years was there a period where you were working as a service designer or has it always been in academia? I changed my career seven times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I have lots of histories. Right, okay. But it's, it's, it's like a natural progression. I hmm. will not tell the stories long, but I started in computer programming yeah. in 1989. Okay. So I was a teenager. Yeah. So I enjoyed working with computers and interfaces, but I realized that they were very ugly. Because, in fact, they were the black and yeah. green monitors. Yeah. The low-resolution things. Uh, hey, this could be better. So, we finally, we have windows and the color monitors. So, I started to study more about the colors, typography, and I shifted to graphic design, from graphic design to branding, from branding to process. User experience. Sigma, operations, and then service design. Okay, excellent. So in today's topic, we're going to be talking about something that probably needs an awful lot more discussion. We've both been discussing it in the lead up to this. 
And that's the difficult side of design in terms of the implementation of anything that we do. But specifically in this episode, we want to focus about the implementation side of service design. Um, so what's your experience, I guess, generally around the implementation side of service design? Yes. So I think this is a relevant topic because it's all about producing reality. Because designers, they start with the intention. This is the, mm -hmm. the desired future state of design is knowledge about the future. Yeah. So, but knowledge is not reality. So, okay, I have a blueprint. This is the description of, about what we imagine that would be ideal situation. Yeah. But we need to translate this intention in the practical world. So this bridge is usually what is difficult mm. because it's not only about the, my interest, my motivation, so my ideas, but we need to, to, to convince people to use the resources in different ways. Yeah. And when we do this, usually we change structures of power. People don't like to lose power. No. So we should be very careful. And sometimes I think designers are a little bit innocent, naive. They think that we, they can come and start making lots of changes and nobody will resist. I know. It's really interesting because um, what you're saying there, I can put my hand up and say I've been guilty of that before. I, I remember in certain instances, where I went into a workshop so naive that all of a sudden I was going to whip out a bunch of these post-it notes uh, and say, just everyone stand back. Jerry's about to do his workshop and I'm going to solve all the world's problems with these post-its. And <laughs> very quickly, you know, in my kind of youth, I was like, actually, I don't know if this is actually making a, making a dent in any of their lives. Like that wasn't the problem. Where do you think... Um, the resistance comes from you mentioned power there but what else is it is it just the people are adverse to change mm. recently i started studying about uh, economical behavior mm -hmm. behavioral economics sorry and uh, we have other explanations for this automatic behavior because in fact people don't even think about resistance to change it seems to be automatic they try to to defend the territory or to avoid like a conflict mm. or cognitive dissonance and things like that. And I know today that we have more than three hundred bias that are cut that we have this in a catalog. Mm. So it's a lot of automatic behaviors that we our brain use to be faster to avoid acting in a slow way because yeah. if we need to process all data we will be very slow so trying to be fast we make these mistakes mm. and it's difficult we don't know what is better to evaluate the environment what is the best things for everybody mm -hmm. and to accept the change but to be very slow Ignore the facts, the data, and just decide very fast. And I see that what happens in organizations is that they have a very quick behavior, 
that reacts automatically to new ideas when designers come and promote or try to defend uh, changes in the organization. Mm. So they avoid it at all costs. Yeah, it's interesting because if you were to speak to somebody who's in technology, they they might argue that um, people are pretty good at accepting new technology and new changes in their lives and new changes to the ways of working. I mean, we only have to look to the pandemic where organizations were quickly able to respond and you know people were able to work relatively effectively um, without being in the office. So we know we can point at those things and say that actually, you know what? People can respond and organizations can respond effectively when they're up against the wall. But when it comes to, you know, new methodologies and new ways of working and, and thinking in a service design mindset that, have, that requires us to look at various levels of detail or zoom or however you want to call it, it seems to hit a ceiling, a glass ceiling there where people struggle. And service design projects, most likely in my experience and in my conversations with many people over the years, fail. What do you think are the the main contributing factors and why service design projects really struggle to see the light of day? I see several factors. One of the factors is the idea that people are too rational. People are driven by data, by insights, by facts. In fact, they are not. So what convinces people to make a change? I, I see this a lot of times in organizations, in a, in a meeting room. We come when we show the results of the research. So this is the idea of the behavior. This is this. Those are the needs of patients in the hospital, hmm. of the citizens in the country. And even with the facts, uh, people deny it. So it seems that the, there is another factor uh, driving the real interests of people. Mm. So I think that um, another factor that uh, is very common is not involving the right stakeholders. Yeah. So the lack of diversity, so the absence of a stakeholder map when you can understand what is the structure of power. Mm. So who are in the decision process, who is connected to the problem that we are studying. Mm -hmm. So usually this is another factor. Another factor I believe that is not having a, a right understanding of the problem. So we are doing the right way, the wrong thing. Yeah. So probably the list of reasons is, is very, very it's, big. It, it's pretty broad. Um, but what are your thoughts on the the discipline and the practitioners and their level of experience of um, when it gets to that stage of a project where we've validated or we've, I hate the word validated, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to stop saying it, but we've, we've come to some sort of conclusion that we're happy to release the first release. And then it just seems that, well, in my experience anyway, the, the change managers or other disciplines within an organization tend to step in and sometimes it's it's a little bit harder for for us to see the light of day so those projects um don't succeed um what what are your thoughts on how we can actually better equip the future of designers to really become um stronger at the implementation side of design one of the most important skills 
mm. something that designers don't have. That is negotiation. Because when you are implementing changes, yeah. usually we generate like conflicts of interest. So, for example, the organization has been doing this way for 10 years. Yeah. So you arrive one early in the morning and say, hey, from now on, we need to change what to do. So people, you need to convince them why this is better. And maybe there is a conflict of interest. So if we if make a change here, I lose power, I lose yeah. comfort, lose money. So convince me why, why I should do this. A win-win situation. Okay, I know that the designers are going to win. So with negotiation, it's all about to find a win-win situation. Hmm. And lots of projects, they don't take into consideration this scenario. So I know in your role um, as professor of service design at SCAD or Savannah College of Art and Design, you must have uh, the opportunity to reshape curriculums to introduce more negoci negotiation skills for designers into the curriculum, correct? Yes. So are there tools that you have introduced to the curriculum that can aid this? You mentioned the stakeholder map. I'm a huge lover of the stakeholder maps. Um, they've served me well over my career. Is there anything else that you might you might want to point us at um, that we can maybe talk a bit, bit more about? Yes. Uh, another um, tool is based on network analysis. Because if you look at the system, the system is made of networks. So if you when you map the system, you have several components connected to each other. And the network analysis helps you to understand what would happen when, when you make changes in the system. Mm. So you can predict or anticipate possible problems. So this is one tool that I think that is very useful. You can do network analysis using tools like Polynode, that's the software. Mm. You can do it with uh, open source like Gephi. Okay. And many others. Is that similar to value network mapping where you would uh, map the the value between the stakeholders? Mm. Or is it a bit further? No, I can see that it goes a bit, bit further because you can include the numbers. Okay. So it I can see, for example, what is the strength, a specific connection between two different stakeholders. Between two nodes almost. Exactly. And based on this, you can anticipate, hey, if I make a change here, we affected the dependence. Okay. And the power is based on dependence. And how, how do you get to that point of being able to quantify the node? What kind of stuff do you have to do? What kind of information and research do you have to do? Okay, so this depends on the organization. Hmm. So some organization they have enough, they have available data, especially if you are come from the digital world. So we have lots of data coming, the source of uh, information going to another point. So based on this information flows, you can extract a lot of information. So you can use this. Sure. But for let me give an example, this software Polynode. It can measure the strength of connections based on surveys. Okay. So you do the survey. The survey uh, puts the information inside Polynode, and Polynode can evaluate which connections are stronger. Wow. 
That sounds really cool. I'm, I'm going to have to try and find this and put a link to that one in the show notes. So, um, folks, you should be able to check the show notes and there should be a link in there. So um, I, I'm going to have a play with that. That sounds something that definitely people could uh, could find a huge value in. But in terms of um, the future of um, the negotiation skills that you mentioned there that, that change makers need to get better at, what do organizations need to do on the flip side? So if we get um, really strong negotiatory skills for, for change makers, what are the bits that you see uh, organizations needing to upskill more on in being able to receive um, the stuff that we're trying to effectively sell to the organization? Yes, I see. I think the problem with the organization is that they are not equal. Mm. So in fact, I don't see organizations Maybe we, we, we have the different levels of maturity. Yeah. So organizations are nature. So they have good leadership. They have open mind. They are open to failure, etc. So the culture of the organizations can make the, the change difficult or not. And sometimes the culture is not ready for change. So this is the concept of readiness to change. And other organizations can be very resistant. They mm. have a very strong culture is not a problem. We we tend to think that the the, the stronger the culture, the worse it is. Yeah. But in fact, it's not. Because a strong culture can make the change difficult. But usually we, when you have a strong culture, the organization is solid. Yeah. Because when the, the culture is weak, it's easy to change, but it's also easy for coming back, turning to original situation. We can see that the, the strength of the culture, the, the resistance to change mm. can be positive because if you convince them to change, you to be, you have higher chance to maintain the change. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm trying, I'm trying to process that one at the same time. Um, on the side of the organization, um, the the side of being convinced is the bit that I'm I'm hanging up on. Like so, I'm kind of saying it's kind of a it's a power structure between us and them, um, and it seems to be a case where we need to negate that somewhat and create more of a common ground, a common language. I know when I've spoken to Mark, I stick to one about this quite a bit. Um, it's rather than thinking of them, it's thinking of us. So like the, the lumpers and the splitters is what Adam Lawrence likes to call it. A big believer in that, like rather than looking for the differences between um, the disciplines, the people that want to work on this stuff together. What advice do you have to change makers out there who are really trying to find their allies and finding the people that want to do the change? Because in my experience with governments and councils around the world, um, what people are saying they want to do versus what they actually really want to do are, are two separate things. And it's sometimes it's very difficult to find the lumpers, the people that are, are going to want to go on the journey with you. Do you have any tips for people on how they can actually identify these people? I think this is an ex excellent question. In fact, I think it's one of the most important because when we find these allies, mm. these people that can participate with you in the change, yeah, can make your work much easier. But this is the thing: boycotters, 
people that will do sabotage that will yeah. make your life harder. They don't have like a label in the forehead saying, hey, I'm your enemy. So <laughs> usually in front of you, they say, hey, let's go. That's yeah. an amazing idea. Wow. Now we, we, we can see the light in the end of the tunnel. So in the front of you, they can seem to be your friends. Yeah. So based on what I know, there is a very interesting theory from Bruno Latour. Bruno Latour is a sociologist, and she, he created a very interesting theory about the agency of objects. So usually when you look to the system, we are very concerned about people, stakeholders, mm -hmm. the champions, the leaders, the managers, employees, frontline, etc. But Bruno Latour showed that the objects, the physical things in the system are very important. Mm. And they can help you to anticipate who can be a boycotter in your system. Why? Because people are connected to the objects, to the physical space, to the rooms, to the building, mm -hmm. to the money, to the software. When you make this change in these things, you can anticipate which people can see this like a threat. So instead of trying to find friends who can be your friend and making change, mm -hmm. I would focus on trying to anticipate who can be a boycotter. Because most of the of people in the organization, they will support the change. The problem are specific people that can see this like a threat to their power. Mm. And whenever you change dependencies in the system, change a process, when you change the physical evidence, when you change, change the roles of people, these change dependencies. So if you can anticipate which parts of the system uh, will affect people based on the changes on the physical world, you can uh, identify who can be a problem. Okay, and, and handling um, the problem, I guess, is, is, a, is another layer of complexity as well, like how you approach the handling of those problems in terms of conflict management and how you resolve those conflicts. Um, not all conflict is bad, and that's something that people, um, I, I know I, I struggled with for a long time, uh, wanting to avoid kind of disappointing people and um, standing up for things and how to effectively negate those things. What's your thoughts on the conflict side of progressing? Um, what we're trying to do here is really um, implement service design into an organization. Um, but how, how do you get around the conflict side of things where people say, like, oh, I don't think this is the right thing or I don't want this? I know in the last conversation that I had recently with Mark Fontaine from the service design show, really need service design. So concerning conflicts, hmm. in fact, you are right. Con conflicts are not good or bad. Yeah. They are just conflicts. It's part conflicts of life. Are, um, natural part of life. Yeah. So it's not about avoiding conflict at all costs. In fact, this is one of the main problems that I have with design thinking because in design thinking world they try to avoid conflicts yeah and in fact conflicts are necessary 
because you can only learn by difference. You don't learn from people that think like you. Absolutely. So conflict, a different idea, can be a source of learning. Yeah, it's a tension. Of it's... course. Yes, I'm talking about the conflicts of ideas, but we have also conflicts of personality. Yeah. This is very different. Yeah. So conflicts of ideas can be good. Mm. People have different ideas. They, they can see different approaches to the same problem. So this can be very rich. Mm. But these people discussing the things, they don't have conflicts of personality. Yeah. So when we have this second kind of conflict, I think this is the can be a big problem. How so? Because I think I might challenge you in this one. Um, uh, do, do you want to aim for perfect harmony in, in your design teams? Is that what, what your your thoughts are? I think that the word perfect is not the word, but I think that should be a space for learning. Hmm. Space for learning means that we make mistakes. I did mistakes, you did mistakes, my friends make mistakes. So the problem is not making mistakes or having like a conflict, a discussion. Yeah. But what can I learn with this? Can Am I using this as an opportunity to being a better person? For example, I teach students. Sometimes I had conflicts with students. Hmm. And lots of times I learn it with them. I learned to be a better professor. Hmm. So at the beginning of my career, I made lots of mistakes. And today, I'm a good professor because of the mistakes I made. Yeah. So I don't see the mistakes like, uh, oh my goodness, they are destroying my life. I, students are a problem. Yeah. No. So the harmony, I think, is based on balance. Mm. So the extremes are not good. Yeah. So the, to have this complete peace, uh, the agreement all the time, but nobody learns nothing. Mm. And the opposite, people keep fighting and there is a lot of disrespect yeah. and offense. People offend other people. So I think they should have a balance. And it's also, you know, I'm keen to point out here at this point that we're, we're just talking about difficult personalities. We're not talking about the asshole in the room is what I like to say. Excuse the French. But... um I'm of the opinion that any room for the a-holes in, in teams, there's no place for them. Okay. There's no place for that behavior, toxic behavior, no place for that stuff. It's people that I'm talking about that might be difficult for your personality. You may not gel. And in my perspective, I think that's not always a bad thing. Okay. Cause those kind of tensions can sometimes be, they can drive some positivity in towards the team dynamics. It can challenge things. It can, it can feel like a little bit more um, of a safer space to challenge versus suppressment and not being able yes. to raise those pieces. Yes, I agree with you. And uh, I apologize. Maybe the, the word that I use is not the best. No, that's You're cool. right. <laughs> so, um, the, See, we've the just resolved something. Person. We've just resolved a conflict. <laughs> yes. So this maybe instead of the difference of personality hmm. should be dealing with the bad character. Yeah. People that lie, that yeah. they they are toxic. So this is the what I call like a bad personality. Yeah, okay. That's that, that that's really interesting. So 
before we start, like, you know, talking about uh, the next piece of this conversation, is there anything else you want to wrap up in terms of um, where designers and where design holistically can improve to really improve the chances of success for service design projects? We mentioned here about the ability to to map networks and map stakeholders, um, handle and discuss and not be fearful of conflict. What other things do you really feel that the, the discipline and the practitioners can really maybe take to heart and say, well, actually, you know what? There are some things I'm going to take away today um, and might increase my chances of success for implementation for service design projects particularly? Yes, good question. I think that is all about understanding what is value hmm. for different risk holders. Yeah. Risk, risk holder is the same like stakeholder. But it's easier to understand because the stake is a risk. Yeah. So people, they have risks. Risky of losing a property, money, time, reputation, power, whatever, yep. reputation, etc. So when you understand what is the risk, what is value for these different risk holders, and you del- you try to accommodate these different interests and to deliver value to them. So this is the basic premise of design. But in fact, it's something that lots of designers don't do because they only take into interest the customer, yeah. the shareholders, but not from the employees, for example. It's a really good point. Um, and someone else mentioned that to me recently. Um, and I can't remember which, which podcast it was. It may not be out yet, but um, they're really good points. Now, in the lead up to this conversation, we were back and forth and we were talking around where we see design going and the future of design and the caveats of design as well um, that too often get trivialized in scripts or videos, or whatever it is, even podcasts as well. I'm sure I'm I'm guilty of it. What are your what are your concerns about where we're at as a discipline right now? Um taking into consideration we're, I wouldn't want to say post-pandemic, but we're definitely on the the other side of the pandemic. I think at this stage, in the world that we are seeing in front of us now, like with increased energy costs, um, a potential war on the horizon, maybe recessions and so forth. What are the things that's really missing that we really need to reframe and reevaluate how we're designing? Mm-hmm. I think that you will talk a very important topic. That's the, the thing that Rachel studies. That's about the mental health. Yeah. So uh, we talk a lot about emotions, emotions of customers. Mm. But I think that we don't really touch on the real meaning of the word emotion. So I think that it is still shallow. I also see that design is under construction. In lots of senses i see that we we are still a little bit shallow in terms of theoretical understandings or even philosophical understanding about what is really what is real design and even i was reading statistics that most of the service designers they learn in the job seeing what others do so is this the best way to learn something 
I I see there is a value on learning by example. I value this. Mm -hmm. I, I myself learn it a lot seeing others work. But I think that this could be better. Yeah, we can actually do that better. The emotion piece is something that you've you've knocked it out of the park for me as well because mapping emotionality and even um user research in particular um i feel that 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 area is probably um we can all improve on it a lot more it's like we've cherry picked elements from anthropology and and social sciences and just kind of we're not doing them uh, justice there's there's an awful lot of value that we've left behind that can be, we can be repurposed and and relearn and reintroduce into the disciplines of design yes definitely uh i see that there is also improvement for teaching mm. because in fact i see that a lot of design schools today design the same way that they used to do like 20 years ago yeah and it seems that the, the teaching is always late the societies changes up that you have a progress but the teaching does not follow it's funny because where you're at now with your professor of service design in one of the most reputable universities in the world that teaches service design how do you avoid that from happening to you and the course that you're teaching it's a QC. <laughs> there's a, for anyone who's listening on the podcast uh there's probably about 25 books behind <laughs> ricardo's shoulders so you, you're a yes. constant reader yes i keep reading new stuff and updating and you need to mm -hmm. because the things that i learned it's decades ago they maybe are not useful today yeah so we have we i'd like to mention that this is another problem with service design yeah um, I value the, all the good contributions that people that write books about service design they have been doing. Yeah. I think that is better than not. Of course it is. But <laughs> please correct me if I'm wrong. It, it seems that there is a disconnection between United States and Europe. Yeah. <laughs> because in the United States, we have lots of knowledge about services, especially from services marketing. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the service design don't want to show these things. Like, hey, we, we never, we don't even know these things exist. And we reinvented the wheel. And uh, why they, they don't consider what others are doing? And the same happens here. People from the United States, they ignore what is being produced in the Europe. Yeah. It's also true in Australia as well, where in Australia, um, even UAE, there's there's a huge uh, chasm between the territories, and especially in South America as well. I know some really strong service design practitioners in South America, um, and even some of the, the the manuscripts and the books that are created aren't aren't reproduced into Spanish and stuff. So. Um, the thing about the the European, um, in, and I can speak from Ireland in the UK, there's still an awful lot of education happening around what services are, what service design is, what it can do for you. In Australia, um, they were a lot further ahead than um, they give themselves credit for, and especially when they're talking about services for government um design maturity in organizations and how their ability to procure services it was much further ahead than where it's at in europe 
Um, that's my personal experience having lived there for 14 years. I can't comment what it's like in America, but I have coached teams in, in America as well. And it does seem that America is somewhat further behind than Europe and Australia. Um, so if I had to look at the, the global maturity in, in my own sort of white male perspective of living in Australia, Australia is one of the most um, dominant service design uh, microcosms as well as Scandinavia. But as far as anywhere else, I really struggle to to name places other than London that um, where people ask me, where, where do you go to get service design jobs? Well, what do you say to them? <laughs> Look, this is interesting. But did you born in Australia? No, I'm born in Ireland, but I lived in Australia for 14 years. Okay. So, look, since I came from Brazil, mm. I looked to the top in the sea, America and Europe. Yeah. United States and Europe. And I can recognize the different levels of maturity. So, United States is very good on services marketing, mm -hmm. but not too much on services design. Yeah. And Europe is good in service design, but not necessarily in services marketing. But both study services. Yeah. So there is lots of overlapping, and you could build bridges. And so I don't understand why this not happen. Listen to you right now is the very first time that I listen to someone talking about services in Australia. Yeah. I, I never heard about them, and I'm surprised that they, they are, have a leadership position in this area. So I have an interest now on knowing more about them. There's there's some great programs down there. And you, you mentioned earlier about academia being 20 years behind um, and you know teaching skills that are somewhat deprecated. I want to ask you a question around um, the importance of having practiced as a, as a practitioner in order to be able to train in the discipline. So um, it, it was a question that was pitched to me in Australia years ago. And I was surprised it was even a question. I was like, in my mind, you have to have practice and you have to have des designed services to be able to teach service design. And I'm not talking about the ability to design a website. I'm talking about the ability to be in the middle of the eye of the storm, working across the business and uh, having that conflict and that, that ab ability to negotiate and that ab ability to present to a wider organization to give executive support and what we're doing. Um, and it's very difficult for me to understand how you could teach this stuff without that experience. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what that looks like from your, your perspective. Yes, Gary, do you want to be a, a teacher here? <laughs> we need professors. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a professor. I, I'm afraid I've only studied to degree level. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, they require MFA things. Um, yeah. This is a, a hell. Okay, so answering your question, I, I agree 100%. Mm. I think that if people should practice things. So the practice is important because it's the practice that shows that you, you work with incomplete information. Mm. So this world that students face in the university and they get a briefing describing what's the problem, this does not exist in reality. Yeah. When you go to the clients, you struggle like for weeks yeah. to understand what they want. What is the problem? I know. 
so this is the thing. It's it's tough because what what I find in some of the curriculums that I've seen, especially in Europe, um, they look to the manuscripts and they look to the books and they reproduce them. And some of the books are twenty years old, um, and the teachings aren't really you know tr- sort of trickling down to the students. So the students aren't getting the best level of education that they could. And I find that some of the other uh, emerging kind of non-accredited educational portals, such as like the General Assemblies and there's other ones around the world, are able to adapt and respond a lot quicker. And they they look to industry and they bring those people in. Um, what, What can we learn from that kind of approach and what can academia take from that? I think this is also a good question. I think that academia has a lot to learn from the real world organizations. Mm. I think there is like a distance mm. between the academia and the reality. Yeah. Here in SCAD, we try to reduce this distance with a special program named <coughs> SCAD Pro. Okay. The SCAD Pro, you have partnership with 180 companies. Wow. It includes Google, Facebook, um, um, Deloitte, Accenture, Slalom, etc. Name it. So these companies come and they, they partner with us in terms of doing projects. So they send us real challenges they have. So the students they can participate over ten yeah. weeks together with these clients. So they 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 see the difficulty that is to get a clear briefing to understand those the real what are the real needs. And also, we have mentors that come from organizations to the classroom, and they evaluate the students so they can see their process and give feedback on the progress of the students. That's definitely like bringing industry closer is is one way I've seen it, and it works quite nicely. But I've seen the kind of the the trinity of um opportunities coming together where you bring employers in for a period of time and they own that project much like you said and then they uh the students get to work on that project and the business get to you know sort of trial and and test out some of the the people who are working on the project and then potentially hire them um it seems like there's still a chasm between uh, even third level education where they go and they do a master's, whatever it is, and then they're kind of left to their own devices. And that kind of forces a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for, a conveyor belt of, of students that just come out and they're looking into an industry. It feels like there's a there's a disconnect between industry and, and the design uh, academia. W- what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Like, um, is that something that I'm imagining, or how can academia better support students in their in their sort of endeavors of getting Look, implemented? Based on my perspective, we have two kinds of disconnections. Mm. One that could be the technical disconnection, yeah, that is all about the design skills, yeah. And in this aspect, I think that at least for SCAD, we we are in a good position, yeah. Because the the students they learn the updated tools, and we work with real challenges. The mm. students they are taught to be independent, so we don't teach them what should be the steps, or we don't give a recipe. Mm. They should be able to decide what should be the next steps, 
to create a, like a research plan by themselves. So try to mimic the real um, situation of a company. But usually the, the biggest disconnection that organizations complain is not the technical one, is the emotional one. Yeah. In terms of the soft skills. This is something that uh, it's not a responsibility of the university to address these things. Mm. But we see that especially with the current generation of students, they have some difficulties to work in teams or even to have empathy, um, to be resilient, and some qualities that you need to to work in organizations. Yeah. So this is the biggest complaint that they offer to us. And I guess that's uh probably goes back to the, the early stage education. It's it's you know stuff that happens in high school and secondary school in in Europe. Yes. And it's you know more calling to the humanities and the arts. Um so yeah, it's it's probably a bigger question like you know. But Ricardo like we, we could definitely speak for not even hours but probably days in some of these topics. Um I've been following you on LinkedIn for a number of years and I've always said I'd love to someday get some time with Ricardo to, to sit in and have a, have a podcast with you. And I finally done it. Um, but if people aren't connected with you on LinkedIn, I'm going to put a link to, to your LinkedIn um, below so for people to connect with you and follow because Ricardo shares out brilliant service design um tidbits and and also just general information about design which i find um really stimulating and, and excellent stuff but if people want to reach out to you on other platforms what other way can they get in touch with you i think they can send an email it's yeah. the best well, platform ever old school because <laughs> i i i almost don't have time to update my linkedin yeah so i don't feel comfortable having other platforms by now maybe in the future that's cool well, I'll put a link to your, your your email address in there in the show notes as well. But look, Ricardo, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for giving me the time and energy and the openness as well to answer some of those questions because I know some of the questions come from left field when, when you're interviewing on This Is Hate City. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Gary. It was amazing to have this discussion with you. I agree that we could speak for this, uh, about this for hours. But maybe this is the just... Um, evidence that we need to meet in person and to drink good beer maybe <laughs> in ireland or savannah i've never been to savannah so someday i hope there you go folks i hope you enjoyed that episode and if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more why not visit this where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there thanks again for listening <laughs>